You're listening to Eusebius on Times Live. That's this latest podcast on Times Live. And it's me, Eusebius McKaiser, exploring the major issues of the week. That means you're going to hear a lot of law, politics and ethics, how they intersect and how important these stories are in the life of all South Africans. When people saw their children must know these are sellouts. They put saliva on the paper. Mr. Julius Malema whispered and said, sing it, sing it. And then they shared that zone. No, I'm not going to apologize. apologize. Can I have my iPad, please? So they stole it. So welcome to another edition of Eusebius on Times Live and what an incredible start to 2022 it has been. The news cycle is on fleek. There's so much for you and I to discuss as South Africans and I thought to myself, let me actually experiment a little bit. This week I'm flying solo. I don't have a guest by choice and that's because I wanted to see whether I could help you out wearing my hat as a political analyst to just step back a little bit from the minutiae and to ask what on earth is going on in the country? What is the state of the nation ahead of the state of the nation address and what does it all mean? You can be forgiven for having complete and utter corruption fatigue after the release of part one of the state capture report, and yet you try and turn the pages of the newspaper and then you're confronted by more horror. If it isn't, the window's being smashed at the front entrance of the Constitutional Court in Braamfontein. It is a fire in Parliament where we're all trying to work out whether it was, in heavy scare quotes, mere criminality, or whether also it portends of attempts to subvert democracy, again, after last year's July unrest. So there's a lot of political news that is currently being bombarding us uh, in the news cycle. And the question is, where do we even begin to make sense of it all? And the first issue that I wanted to try and bring some meaning to is around the state capture report. What should you make of some of the main findings? It has now been a few days. You've been able to sit with the report. You've been able to read. If you haven't been reading the report, the summaries of it, the cheat sheets provided by some excellent journalists. And the question is, what really are some of the most important takeaways that we should take from part one of the state capture report? that had been chaired by Acting Chief Justice Zondo. And for me, there are several insights here that are worth sitting with as a country. The first is to understand, and I think this hasn't been emphasized enough, that there is a fundamental difference between, let's call it, ordinary corruption and state capture. I'll say it again. The first important takeaway from part one of the state capture report is that there is a difference between ordinary corruption and state capture. State capture is about reconfiguring particularly the state so that you can, into perpetuity, fleece it. That is different from ordinary corruption in the following way. If I'm corrupt and I normally charge, let's say, 30 rand per chair that I hire out to a venue as an eventing expert, and I see, okay, I can get away with charging the Department of Social Development 200 rand per chair, even though I could still make a decent profit 
renting out my chairs at 30 rand per chair, but there's someone there in the finance department willing to let the invoice go through. I'll give them a cut and I'll take the rest and I will still get three, four hundred percent more than what I normally would get. That is corruption. That is at least unethical behavior. And at worst, it might be criminal, depending on what other facts there are to the case. But when you are inflating an invoice, you are obviously stealing and being unethical. But that is different from, for example, doing what Bain with Tomoyane did at South African Revenue Service. And that is what Volume 3 of Part 1 of the State Capture Report in detail outlines it is consistent with the testimony of, and in fact reliant on, the testimony of whistleblower Ethel Williams, uh, whose book on collusion is really worth reading, which goes beyond his testimony before the Zondo Commission. But what is important about that example when it comes to Bain, Tomoyana and SARS is that they basically didn't only want to funnel money from SARS into Bain and into the networks of scoundrels that are stealing from state-owned entities and state departments and other parts of the democratic structure. They actually wanted to completely redesign the structure of SARS, the operations of SARS, in order to make sure that, for example, the capacity of SARS to investigate those who are not complying with tax laws and regulations, that that capacity is completely neutralized. Because if you don't have the investigative capacity, then it makes it easier for tax evaders and for other scoundrels who are not doing their part as part of the social compact to make sure that they are contributing to the public purse to get away with it because you've suddenly neutralized the internal capacity of SARS to be able to do so i.e. to go after the ones that are flouting the laws in relation to taxation. And the same with other parts of SARS. If you are, in terms of organizational culture and from a human resource perspective, if you start bullying men and women that are not prepared to turn a blind eye to you flouting various pieces of legislation, with you flouting Public Finance Management Act, and you hound them out of their jobs, then you are also trying to repurpose the entire organization by also making sure that you get rid of good men and women and that you put pliable men and women into their positions instead so that you are better able and more efficiently able to steal from the public going forward. Now, you can see how that is grand-scale looting that involves structurally redesigning the South African Revenue Service, and that is about fundamentally hollowing out a healthy organizational structure, fundamentally messing up effective and efficient operations that are currently routinely happening in SARS, so that you are able to repurpose SARS for criminal ends. That is the nature of state capture. And that is very different from me being involved in standard-grade corruption, where, for example, I steal from the petty cash, or I say to myself, no, I just need 200 rand for lunch, I'll replace it tomorrow, and then I never do so. There are small-scale examples of wrongdoing that happens in organizations on a daily basis across the world. 
They should not be under-characterized in terms of how wrong they are ethically and legally and organizationally because they can have real consequences. But what is scary and specific to state capture, we now know, courtesy the work of Justice Zondo, is that state capture is a different category of theft by setting up institutions so that you are able to steal from them on a grand scale and for as long as possible going forward. And that is what we had in South Africa been experiencing for way too long, at least 10 years, probably much longer, quite frankly. So that for me is the first important takeaway. And I'll come back to summarizing it by saying it again. There's a difference between, let's call it, ordinary corruption and state capture, and it's really important that we get a proper handle on what the nature of state capture is, what the mechanics are of the behavior of those involved in state capture, because you can't begin to intervene and to solve the problem unless you've got a proper grip on the nature and the size and the scope of the problem. So first takeaway, state capture is not ordinary corruption. It is worse, it is different, and you need to understand exactly how it works. I think a second important takeaway for me is that the democratic consequences are really dire for all of us. The way we've been reporting on this over the last week or so is to almost list the names, people like Durumiyeni, for example, come up, Tomoyane comes up, or individual corporates come up, PwC come up when we talk about SAA, or Bain comes up when we talk about SARS or about Telcom, or SAA, by the way. But it's also really important for us to understand how systems work and how institutions work. That's really, really, really important. I mean, if we take an example of the Volume 1, Part 1 of the State Capture Report, there are so many different actors that were in cahoots with each other that were responsible for what happened at SAA, SA Technical, as well as South African Express. And what happened there was that you had an entire board that was pliable, a board chairperson in particular, that were bullying people, that were not willing to be corrupt and weren't corruptible, but also that she was getting cover from, for example, the state security agency. And that is really bad news for us as South Africans because it means that the entire democratic project and our entire constitutional edifice had been affected by state capture. And I think there, I'm really looking forward to part three of the report when we have a proper synthesis of all of the work collectively, an executive summary, and clear recommendations towards the end. Because I'm really keen to see what a jurist with a deep expertise in constitutionalism like Justice Zondo has to say about the overall impact on our democracy as such. At the moment, we're almost doing case study by case study reporting, personality by personality reporting in terms of who the scoundrels were and are in our midst. But when I step back from the detail and I ask myself, what does it all mean? What does it all mean? What really is going on here? For me, the second big takeaway, remember the first was state capture is worse than ordinary corruption. It is different from ordinary corruption. The second big takeaway for me when I think about 
part one of the state capture report is that our entire democratic process and our entire democratic edifice has been corrupted and has been affected by and corroded by state capture. And I don't say that lightly. I really don't. As someone with a deep interest in democratic theory and as a political analyst with a keen keen interest in the intersection between constitutionalism and what happens in real politics and society at large, I am not trying to provoke you or scare you into brushing off your tickets to leave the country. I really mean it when I say that we've got to reckon with the implications of the State Capture Report, Volume 1, for the entire overall democratic edifice that we have. Nothing more and nothing less than the entire constitutional project is at stake in terms of how we respond. Which brings me lastly to the third important takeaway. And there are many more takeaways, but I'm trying to give it to you in sort of drip, drip, bite-sized, manageable sizes to digest in the weeks ahead, both on timeslive.co.za, but also on Eusebius on Times Live in the podcast. So I won't depress you too much. But I want to give you a a third takeaway from, from the State Capture Report that, in my opinion, is really, really important. How we respond and whether there's accountability is up to you and me. In our live recording of the first Eusebius on Times Live podcast for the year, when I was in conversation with my excellent colleague, Sabelo Skiti, who is one of the country's best investigative journalists, and the Helen Sussman Foundation, which is one of our best oversight organizations, and their new head, Nicole Fritz. We were talking towards the end of that conversation about accountability, because most of your questions and comments that you were giving us on YouTube as you were listening to us were, will there be justice? What will happen to this report? And I want to say this, what happens next depends on you and me. Are we going to simply let it be business as usual and not hold the state accountable, not hold the private sector accountable, or are we going to use our collective power, our collective agencies as individuals, as civil society organizations, to demand accountability, to insist that the National Prosecuting Authority becomes more effective in going after those that we now know with a decent fact basis that comes out of this report to have stolen from you and me, worse, to have undermined the entire structure of our democracy, but not just stealing, but also repurposing massive parts of the state. So I'm afraid the question goes back to you. What are you going to do with the report? Are you going to get up and go as if it's business as usual in our country, knowing now what you did not know last week, last year, the year before. The combination of excellent journalism from investigative journalists, plus good research output from many organizations, like Open Secrets, for example, plus the work of this commission, gives all of us collectively, and let's call ourselves civil society, broadly construed, it gives civil society a gigantic, gigantic factual basis with which 
to insist upon accountability. So the accountability question is not a theoretical question that hangs in the air, that is divorced from you as an individual, that is divorced from me. The accountability question must be settled by you and me in the first person. You must formulate it differently by asking it in the following format. What am I, as Eusebius, going to do with this document? What am I, as Eusebius, going to do to make sure that accountability is seen and felt and realized in my country, in our country? What am I going to do to make sure that the rule of law is animated rather than being dead? And that first person framing is very important because we often, as citizens, end up behaving as subjects rather than as citizens. But the difference is important. As a citizen, not only do you have certain rights, you also have power as a citizen. And our collective power needs to be harnessed if we are to see the country that is so beautifully idealized in the constitution but not realized in reality. And that question, what am I going to do with my individual power and what are we going to do collectively as civil society? I want you to sit with that question and perhaps we can have a live event in the next couple of weeks in which we open up that question and dive into it as citizens. It's really important that you don't behave as a subject and that you don't treat politicians and business people as if they do you and I a favor. They don't do us a favor. Treat them as ordinary members of society. And the best way you can do so is by holding them maximally accountable for their actions and, crucially, also for their inactions. <laughs>